I won't do Judy like I did Beth last week and make her stay there and let's sing that, but I hope you're reading those words as they were sung, or as they were played, rather. I was singing. If I was right here. Uh, I hope you didn't hear me, especially after the way I butchered the doxology last Sunday. Somebody asked me afterwards, well, my daughter asked me, uh, she said, have you never sung the doxology? Uh, my son asked me, have you never sung the doxology before? Well, I was just so captivated to get to that third phrase, I just skipped the second one. But anyway, again, there's a reason why I do what I do and don't do what I don't do. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6 as we continue in our study, picking back up where we left off two weeks ago. We've been in this section of, of verses 12 through 14 for three different weeks now. We'll probably bring that to a close this morning as we think about it and and consider what the apostle is saying. I think it's very important we not miss this. And the whole context of 1 through 14 is really important. So I'm really going to read all 14 verses this morning before uh, before I focus on those last three verses, 12, 13, and 14. Start in verse 1. Follow along with me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Heavens no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know, we know, you got that, we know, not we hope, not we we dream, not we think, not we're possibly, but, but we know, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never again will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so you also must consider yourselves, reckon yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's the key verses for today again. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Or to paraphrase it just a tad, don't let sin reign. Don't let sin rule. Don't let sin be the controlling matter in your body. In the life you're living. In the flesh in which you are walking. In the life that you have been called to and are now to live out before the world. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members 
to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God, your hands, your feet, everything about you, your mouth, your ears, your eyes, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you if you are in Christ, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. We must never lose sight of the fact that in this part, in these, and 12 through 14 is really sort of a practical application of 1 through 11, the doctrinal truth that he's laying there, that, that we've been baptized with Christ, we've died with Christ, we've been resurrected with Christ. All this is reality. All this is true. In Christ we have died to sin. We are dead to sin. It should not have, but, but verses 12 through 14 is really, right in the middle of this, a little bit of a practical application. Now, it's true that verses, uh, excuse me, chapters 1 through 11 of this, of this letter are, are strongly doctrinal, strongly theological. And then he comes to chapter 12, and he says, Therefore, based on all of this, I, I want you to live this way. But it's all based on what Christ has done. But he's doing that just a little bit here when he says, Let sin therefore, because of what I just said, that's where the therefore points to, or as we sometimes say, that's what the therefore is there for. Because of what I have just said, that is an absolute truth and an absolute reality. Don't let this happen in your life. I I entitled the sermon, Using Your Body for the Glory of God. And that's why I had Pastor Todd read the passage in the hearing of the Word out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul says all these things about meat and stuff that we read sometimes and say, wait a minute, do you say this? Do you say yes or no? Or what do you say? He makes it pretty clear, but, but as we work through that, but when he gets to the end, he makes no equivocation at all, and there's no question about what he means. And in everything you do, whether you eat or you drink, in everything you do, Do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Keep that as your focus. And that's really what Paul is saying here in in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. He's saying the same thing, just in a little different way. Everything that is about you and everything that you are about is to be lived for the glory of God. And we must never lose sight of the fact that he is referring back here clearly to that first verse of chapter 6. What he's saying here is lost if you don't tie it to verse 1 where he says, what shall we say then? This was the accusation against Paul because back in, if you remember back in the the fifth chapter, Paul has said, and and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. When when there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of grace. And so his, his enemies were saying, his accusers were saying, Well, Paul, aren't you saying that we ought to just uh, eat, drink, and be merry, go on sinning, do whatever we want to do? Because the more we sin, then the the greater the grace of God is. And Paul says, there's the issue right there in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In verse 2 he says, by no means, or heavens no, or God forbid, or however your translation translates that. Paul is saying, I want you to understand something. The grace of God is not just something that forgives sin. 
we sometimes look at it that way, don't we? We sometimes think, well, we received the grace of God, and the grace of God brought forgiveness of sin, and when the grace of God brings forgiveness of sin, then every time we sin, the grace of God is going to bring more forgiveness of that sin, so we'll sin more so that we'll get more forgiveness of that sin. But Paul is making it very clear in verses 12 through 14 that the grace of God does not just forgive sin. It does forgive sin. It does cover sin with the righteousness of Christ, but it doesn't just do that. I, I, was, I was moved how Pastor Todd was moved by the choir's special. I surrender all. You notice in there that the prayer is, Lord, fill me with your grace, fill me with your power, that I may be able to surrender all. It's not a matter of this is something I do so that, so that God can see that I'm okay. It's something that he does in me by his grace that causes me out of a response to that grace to say, Lord, I give you everything. I don't hold anything back. I, I, I want to worship you, I want to honor you, I want to glorify you, I want to lift you up before men everywhere, whether at work or at play or at church or wherever I might be. I just want to see that, that I want to understand and I want to live out the reality that your grace doesn't just forgive sin, your grace changes lives and, and changes my life. And the tr- if truth be known, if, if grace is not changing your life, grace is probably not forgiving your sin. It's a harsh statement, isn't it? Pastor, why would you be so harsh? Because that's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying grace is not just some kind of band-aid that you put on in order that you might be able uh, to say, I'm forgiven. So I can do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want to live. I can say whatever I want to say. That grace is not just something that brings forgiveness grace is that which changes lives when properly understood Paul's teaching is the exact opposite of what his critics were saying oh shall we go on sinning so grace may abound more no we don't go on sinning because grace is abounded and grace is at work in our life and grace is changing our life on a daily consistent basis you know there are two real dangers here in the in grace baptist church as we think about grace one is to say well i'm okay because God's grace is forgiven my sin and I'll do whatever I want to do. And another say, well, I'm okay because I've got all this head knowledge. I've grown in this knowledge. I, I know all about God. I know about grace. I know all about salvation. I know, I know what God's word says. And that's important. But the thing Paul is wanting to point out here, I think, because he's talking about doing something and not doing something in this passage, He's not just talking about what Christ has done. He's saying on the basis, therefore, on the basis of what Christ has done, this is what you're to do. You're to surrender all. That's what he's saying. You're to give it all to Christ. You're to say, Lord, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. And my life, my, my, my family, my, my, my possessions, my fun, my everything is to be given 
to you. Paul is saying doctrine, for it to truly be what God intends for it to be, theology, for it really to be what God intends for it to be. And theology is not just for theologians. It's for the common believer. It's another mistake we can make. But Paul is saying that doctrine or theology or, or the knowledge of God's Word is not enough just to know what it says, but doctrine must always be applied. We dealt with that a few weeks ago on Wednesday night in our, our study of the core doctrines of the Christian faith that we're moving through on Wednesday nights. And, and we talked about four different ways that really the, the, the doctrine, the truth of God's Word is to be seen. First of all, it's to be believed. That's the first step. What God says is true is to be believed as true. Now, the old statement that people use all the time, you know, and they feel very proud about it, is God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is a lie. There's an unnecessary phrase in there. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If God said it, that settles it. Now, you ought to believe it. Because it is settled truth, because it is God's Word speaking and God's Word making itself clear. And so the first thing about doctrine is doctrine is to be believed. That's what we call orthodoxy. That's believing what the Scripture teaches and what the church has always believed and always taught and always said. And so there's this orthodoxy, this orthodox belief that's to take place in every believer's life. You're to come to God's Word and you're to say, that's what God says. That's not what man says. That's what God says. And know that because it's from God, and we're looking at that in depth on Wednesday. I encourage you to come be with us on Wednesday. We're having some fun studying core truths of the Christian faith. But, and we're in the Word right now. We talked about uh, you know, the Word last week, and, and we'll talk about it some more this coming week, Lord willing. But, but the point Paul is saying here is you ought to believe it. You ought to believe that you have died with Christ. If you say that you have trusted Christ, you ought to believe. You ought to reckon. You ought to, you ought to, you ought to consider yourselves in this condition, not because you're fantasizing and playing like it's true, but because it's true. But you have to say it. You have to know it. You have to believe it. And that's orthodoxy. That's true belief, sound doctrine. But not only is doctrine to be believed, the Scripture makes clear that doctrine is to be practiced. It's to be put into practice in your daily life. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthopraxis is right living, living out of what we believe. Now, let me make this clear, or it becomes just vague moralism. We, we're, our right living is always based on right beliefs. You, you don't live right on your own strength. You don't live right because you're such a good person. You live right because you come to believe the truths of God's Word and the truth of God is manifested in your life and, it, and the grace of God is filling your life and the grace of God is strengthening your life and it goes from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. In other words, you start looking like daily what you say you believe. I think about a lot of Orthodox Christians who sit around on Sunday morning and say, oh, I believe, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. And then they leave those doors and that, that belief and that grace that they say has filled their life never makes a difference in how they live out there. Orthopraxy. Doctrine's also to be confessed. It's to be confessed. 
public profession of Christian belief. Now, we, we confess it at one sense in baptism. That is a confession before men that I, and before the church that I am following Christ. Christ has done a work of grace in my life. And now I am declaring that and I'm showing you that. I am saying to you, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm making a stand right now to live this and to live for him for the rest of my life. Now, uh, it's, it's a confession. It's a profession of faith that takes place in that water. But if that's the only profession of faith you ever make, if you're never out ever again with people and saying, you know, I want you to know I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe He's the Son of God. I believe He came to rectify the problem that happened in the fall and to set things right between man and God. I believe He came to redeem a people for Himself. I believe He came not just to give me forgiveness of sins, but to sanctify my life and to make me more like Him. And I confess that before you, that Jesus Christ is the only answer to the sin problem. Unless you confess that somewhat regularly, before men, then the doctrine is not, the orthodoxy is not fully orthopraxy in your life. And this to be taught. To be believed, practiced, confessed, and taught. Teaching is the word, actually, that, that the word doctrine comes from. It's a Latin docere, to teach. So doctrine is just teaching. That's why every week, if you, uh, if you take your bulletin home, you see on one side of this is the faith talk where we have for this whole year the, the New City Catechism. And, and, and we have that so you can teach your family, teach your children the truth that you say you believe, you put into practice, and that you confess to be what you say you believe. You know, the big question is, do you really believe what you say you believe? A lot of people say they believe one thing, but if you really press the case with them, do you really believe what you say you believe that you believe? Well, that sometimes is a whole nother matter. We must always beware of the danger of being content with knowledge alone. Always be, beware of being content with knowledge alone. That's a danger. You know, you know people. I know people. They go from Bible study to Bible study. They do this and they go there. And, and man, there's a new Bible study. They'll go get in it and this and that. And yet their lives never change. They talk about grace. And they want people showing grace to them. But has grace really changed a life? I think the main question that we are to ask as we come to verses 12, 13, and 14 is this. What does this section tell us about ourselves as Christians in relation to sin? Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. 
I really intended to bring a couple of things up here with me today. I'm not real big on, I'm not real good. I could shop, probably should be better with, with visual effects during the sermon. But I thought about this a little bit. I thought about bringing a hammer up here with me. And, and call on Mike Seatek, who's a surgeon, and say, Mike, would you come up here and demonstrate to me how you use this instrument to do abdominal surgery? Now, you could do that, I think. You could take the claw part of it, you could probably, but it wouldn't be very pretty, would it? No. Or, or a pair of pliers and say, you know, here, I want you, I want you to come up here and I want you to, to use these pliers and I want you to drive this nail into, the, into a piece of wood for me. Or even a scalpel. I, I, I bring a scalpel up here and say, boy, this scalpel's really good. Would you go back there and slice the steaks for dinner tonight? I mean, the truth of the matter is, you'd look at me and you'd say, you're probably looking at me right now and saying, he's lost his ever-loving mind. Because those are not instruments fitted for the task that you're trying to give them. Paul is saying, be sure that your instruments, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, those are instruments that need to be fitted for the purpose for which you've been called. And that purpose is the glory of God. That purpose is to say, I'm not just somebody who has been forgiven of sin. I'm not just somebody who has been, who has been somehow, you know, unchanged. I'll still live the way I want to live, but I'm unchanged, but I've been forgiven said your instruments and the way you use those instruments will indicate your purpose in life the way you purpose to use the instruments of your mortal body will serve as evidence of what your purpose in life is to just have a good time? Yeah, I, think about, I think about David in, in his episode with Bathsheba. If he had followed Paul's advice here, because I know Paul hadn't written this yet, but the Old Testament's filled, filled with the same advice in the Psalms, particularly things that David himself wrote sometimes. Don't present the members of your, of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, he never would have fallen with Bathsheba because it didn't start with the sin with Bathsheba. It started with allowing himself to be in positions where he should not have been to begin with. Not out with his army in battle. Rising late in the morning and sunning on his roof and looking over at things he ought not be looking at and, and then letting lust build up. You know, I'm always tickled, that, or I was tickled, it's kind of died down now, but I do see an article every now and then about it, that uh, Mike Pence got such a, such a blasting, Vice President Pence, when he said he would not be alone with another woman who's not his wife. Oh, how horrible that is, how, how antiquated that is, how out of date that is. Well, let me tell you something, folks. That's what Paul is saying here. When you put yourself in circumstances that can only lead to unrighteousness, you're presenting yourself to that and you're giving yourselves to that. Paul says, don't do it. I think many times 
when temptation comes, and temptation will come, we ask the wrong questions. We ask the questions, will I like it? Will it feel good? Will it be pleasurable? Instead of asking the questions, what is God's word? Say about this situation. How can, I, how can I go this route of temptation and glorify God in my body? You see, if the focus is on me, I will fall. If the focus is on Christ and on the glory of God, in everything I do, everything I do, I'll stand. Purely that simple. And, and, and Paul is making clear here, and don't miss this, because he doesn't use the word here. But he's making clear in this passage that the Christian life is a battle. It's a war. It's not... Love and peace and roses. It's a battle. That's why in the, in the Ephesian letter, when he wrote the Ephesian Christians, he said, listen, put on the whole armor of God. Be ready to stand firm. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's not your righteousness. That's his righteousness. Put on the breath, breastplate. Be covered in the righteousness of Christ. And, and, and gird yourself about with the belt of truth. His word is truth. Jesus said in John 17, Father, sanctify them, make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus said. And so, so put on the breastplate of righteousness. Be sure you got on the belt of truth. Put on the shoes of the gospel. Put on the helmet of salvation. That's the grace of God that changed your life. And, and take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to ward off or deflect or extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. But put on the, the sh pick up the shield of faith. That is, trust God in every circumstance. Believe God in every circumstance, even when our sight may look different. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you, we've taught on that before, we've talked on that before. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is not this in a book. It is this, but it's this that has been internalized. It's this book that has been treasured in your heart. David said in, in Psalm 119, Your word have I treasured, your word have I hidden, your word have I placed within my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. Why is it important for it to be in the heart? Internally? Rather than just, I mean, every, we've all got a Bible, so don't we have, if we need it, can't we go run into the Bible and find something? Let me tell you something. In the moment of temptation, in the moment of warfare, in the moment when Satan attacks and says, oh, it's just grace that forgives your sin. Don't worry about anything else. You don't have time to run and say, well, what did God say about that? But if it's treasured in your heart, if it's treasured in your heart, if it's, if it's sweeter than the honeycomb to you, 
that's more pleasurable than eating honey. And if you know me, you know I love honey. Everywhere I go, if there's a nice price on a quart of honey that looks good, I buy it. Retta sometimes wonders where we're going to put all the honey. I love honey. It's pleasurable. And I eat it in some ways that you probably don't. I love it. The Word of God is sweeter than that. The Word of God that is internalized is more precious than that. And honey might give me a little sugar energy for a short while, but it will not give me the power to fight temptation. It will not give me the power to, to as Paul says here, to, to present my members to God as instruments of righteousness. It will not give me the ability to say, I will not, by God's grace, because God's grace is eternal, internalized in me, I, I will not have sin, have dominion over my life. I won't do it. Paul says, since you are not under law, but you're under grace. Now, don't miss that. We'll pick it up next week when he talks about it a little bit more. But why is it more important? Why is it, why is it, why is it more easy, if you will, if it is easy, to not sin under grace than it is to not sin under law? I mean, we live in a fairly lawless society now, don't we? People are disobeying the law all the time. People are lying. People are, are, are doing ungodly things. And, and, and yet there is a law against most of that. But law doesn't change a heart. Law can't make them obey. Law can say, I will, we will issue a punishment if you disobey. Got a gift from the German government just this past week. Doing 15 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. And they invited me to send them 20 euros. But their law didn't keep me from going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Just gave me the benefit to contribute to the German government. Or the privilege of contributing to the German government. The law didn't keep me from doing it. The law of God is clear. And every day, tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and you're going to go out and you're going to see somebody disobeying what God has said they should do or should not do. You're going to see it. You may even do it yourself. Because the law of God does not have the power to keep you from sinning. But the grace of God does the grace of God changes us. The grace of God transforms us from darkness to light. It transforms us. It changes us from, from selfishness to selflessness. From Adam-like to Christ-like. So as I said before, 
The main question that faces us in this section and that we want to think about, and I want you to leave here thinking about, is this question. What does Paul say to us in this section about ourselves, about myself as a Christian in relation to sin? And one step further, when I see what it says, am I going to believe it enough to do what it says? Pray with me.